welcome to Radar Contact, the audio show that teaches pilots how to speak professionally and with confidence to air traffic control. Radar Contact is going to change the way you fly and communicate. And now here's your host, airline pilot, author, and host of ATCCommunication.com, Jeff Canarish. Welcome to another edition of Radar Contact. Today we're going to talk about how you fit into the relationship between approach control and tower control. This conversation applies to both VFR and to IFR operations. Now here's what prompted this discussion. A couple of weeks ago, I received an email from a listener who had read my book, Radio Mastery for VFR Pilots. Even though I covered flight in Class Delta and Class Charlie airspace in the book, This pilot still had questions about when and how to switch from working with approach control to working with an airport tower. Here's the narrative from his email, and I promised him I would leave his name out of the discussion. So I'm reading directly now from his email. Normally, about 15 to 20 miles out, I dial up the ATIS to get that behind me before the mad rush of activities that always accompany the descent and approach into the destination airport. He says in parentheses, at this point in time, I had not yet mastered the art of listening to ATIS on comm number two while keeping comm number one on center frequency. We were getting very close to Tyler, that's Tyler Airport in Tyler, Texas, and I kept waiting for ATC to call me and say, VFR flight following terminated, have a good day. Now I'm 10 miles out, usually where I'm making my call to tower to notify them that I'm inbound for landing but I am still stuck on ATC for flight following. Now at this point, I'm talking to Longview Approach, and rather than ask them about sequencing, I called them up and requested the termination of flight following as I had their report in sight. They seemed perplexed and confirmed that I did want to cancel. I gave them an affirmative, and they came back and said, VFR flight following terminated. Maintain your current squat code into Tyler which perplexed me, as I figured they would say Squawk VFR. So after reading your book, Chapter 16, regarding AIM 4-1-8 Approach Control Services for VFR Arriving Aircraft, I wanted to confirm something. First, had I not terminated flight following, would Longview Approach have sequenced me in and had me contact the tower, say, five miles out or so? And what would that exchange have sounded like? He had a second question, and we'll address that in a minute, but now let's look at this question and develop an answer. First, I suppose we have to define what an approach controller does for aircraft arriving at an airport. The purpose of approach control is to control the flow of aircraft into an airport, and that's true whether you're flying VFR or IFR. How approach control does this depends on the type of airspace in which control is taking place. In class echo airspace, approach control provides traffic advisories and safety alerts to VFR aircraft. This is what we generally refer to as flight following, although the official term is basic radar service for VFR aircraft. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. How can you have approach control in class echo airspace? Well, there are certain areas around big airports, let's say here in Atlanta is a good example, where there are large stretches of airspace which are not Class Bravo or Delta or even Charlie. Atlanta Approach can provide broad area control, even if you're outside of the confines of Class C, you're just tooling around in Class E and bound to an airport somewhere. So yes, you can even be talking to approach control in Class E. 
In class Charlie Airspace, on the other hand, approach control will give you headings to fly to help sequence you into the flow of traffic inbound towards your destination airport. These headings will be provided automatically unless you refuse to participate by saying negative radar service. In class Delta Airspace, in which you're talking to a control tower as you proceed inbound to the airport, you are always required to participate in the controller's instructions. You may not opt out of the system as you may when flying VFR in Class Charlie. Here's something you might not know about airport tower control. In many cases, the tower controller has a radar display in the tower cab. The radar display in the tower cab is either certified, that is, the radar has been calibrated and tested to meet strict guidelines for aircraft display and control, or it's not certified. If the radar is certified, a tower controller may actually act as a radar controller for the airport within his class Delta airspace. Bear with me here because this is important and it will help to answer the question in the email I read to you. If the radar in the airport tower cab is not certified, a tower controller may not use an uncertified radar display to actually control traffic, but the radar is still a good tool for maintaining the big picture. As with any ATC radar display, the tower's radar display shows aircraft targets. If an aircraft has been assigned a unique transponder code, the tower radar display will show the aircraft's call sign, altitude, aircraft type, and possibly its ground speed. The display also shows certain markers that ATC uses to identify airspace boundaries, navigation fixes, and airport approach courses and navigation airways. Here's why this is important. When you proceed VFR inbound to an airport, approach control works with your aircraft based not only on what you communicate on the radio, but also based upon what the approach controller sees on his radar display. Meanwhile, in the tower cab at your destination airport, the tower controller sees the exact same information about your airplane as the approach controller. So there you are flying inbound to your destination, you're talking to approach control, Approach is giving you headings to keep you in the sequence with other aircraft inbound to the airport. In some cases, if traffic is light and there is no need to push your aircraft around, Approach may simply let you navigate towards the airport with no instructions at all. When the radar target for your aircraft reaches a certain distance from the airport, the Approach controller will tell you to contact tower and give you the tower's frequency. The point where you are told to switch to tower will vary by airport and by traffic conditions, but you will always be told to switch to tower prior to entering the boundary of tower's area of responsibility. Realize this instruction to switch to tower before penetrating tower's airspace will happen no matter what type of airspace you're currently flying in. And by the way, this change from approach control to tower applies not only to VFR flights, but also to IFR flights. If you're assigned a discrete transponder code by ATC, you will most likely not be told to squawk VFR before entering tower's airspace. Why? Because most towers have that radar display I was telling you about that will show your aircraft's complete data, your call sign, altitude, ground speed, etc., as long as you keep squawking your discrete transponder code. If you were told to squawk the VFR code 1200 before contacting tower, All of that important data about your aircraft would disappear off tower's radar display and your radar target would only be labeled with your 1200 code and your altitude. By retaining your transponder code as you switch to tower's frequency, tower knows who you are 
and where you are even before you check in with the controller on the radio. Finally, let's talk about what happens when you proceed into an airport with a control tower that does not have a radar display in the tower cab. In that case, you would most likely be told to squawk VFR as you're told to switch the tower's frequency. How does tower know you're approaching the edge of his airspace? There are a couple of possibilities. First, the approach controller may contact the tower controller on a landline and alert him to your arrival. Or, and this is more likely the case, there might be a letter of agreement in place between the approach control facility and the tower control facility that specifies exactly when and where aircraft will be passed from approach control to tower control, and in that case, most likely, it'll just all be coordinated according to the letter of agreement. Do we pilots really care about that letter of agreement or the mechanics of how we get passed from approach control to tower control? Well, not really. All we really need to know is that there is a system in place that ensures we will talk to the correct controller at the correct time and location. By the way, this same system of changing controllers works if you happen to be talking to an en route center controller as you proceed towards an airport. The center controller should tell you to switch to tower's frequency before you reach the boundary of tower's airspace. There's one word of caution in all this, and we'll talk about it as we answer question number two in our listener's email, and here's the second question. And I'm quoting again. I got nervous that I was approaching class Delta airspace without talking to the tower at the field. So if you are in contact with ATC, such as a regional approach control, does that count? And are you technically able to enter the class Delta without talking to the tower of the field so long as you're talking to approach control? Well, here's the answer. You should not enter class Delta without talking to the tower controller, even if you are talking to approach control. If you are just about to enter the boundary of class Delta, and you feel as though the approach controller has forgotten about you, feel free to speak up. Approach, do you want me to switch to tower's frequency? This type of situation should be the exception rather than the rule. Sometimes controllers get so busy that their attention is pulled away from aircraft that reach the boundary of their airspace. It doesn't happen too often, but there have been times when I've remarked to my flying partner, hey, it looks like the controller has forgotten about us. Realize that in some locations and at certain times of the day, air traffic controllers get extremely busy, and we're all in this together. So if it seems like a controller has forgotten about you and you know you should be making a radio frequency change or doing something else that should be obvious for your circumstances, don't hesitate to give the controller a polite reminder of what it is you think you should be doing at that point. Really, moving safely from place to place in your airplane is a team effort, and you and ATC are on the same team, so help each other out. If you have any questions about the relationship between approach control and tower control, or if you have any questions in general about ATC communication, please write to me at jeff at atccommunication.com. As you can tell from this segment of your show, I love answering questions, and I would rather talk about what concerns you when we spend time together in radar contact and at your website. just a few moments, I'll have more techniques and tips for working with ATC plus your question of the week. Right now, let's cover what I learned from you in a survey that just closed today. In our last radar contact, I asked you to complete a short survey about the aircraft radio simulator. 
Specifically, I needed to know if you would be able to use a fully functioning radio sim if it were only offered for desktops, laptop computers, or certain tablet computers. Currently, I don't have the technology to mount the simulator on mobile platforms such as the iPad and most smartphones. My concern was I'd spend thousands of hours building a complete simulator only to find that most pilots could not or would not use the thing because it wasn't available for mobile devices. Here is what I discovered from the survey. 93% of those who took the survey said they would use the radio sim if it were only offered for desktop, laptop, and tablet computers. That's a very encouraging number and certainly motivates me to press forward with development. I want to point out that if the simulator is well-received, I will move forward with development for mobile devices when I find a technical solution that works for the sim. My other concern was that many people would not be willing to pay for the simulator. With thousands of hours of development work in my future, actually behind me already, plus in the future, the exp- and the expense of delivering the simulator to your computer, I knew I would have to charge something to make a simulator possible. Of those who took the survey, 54% said they would only use the simulator if it were offered for free. I simply cannot offer something of this magnitude for free. It isn't feasible. Since I am philosophically opposed to in-app advertising, I will need to generate some revenue simply to deploy the sim. I also believe most people who said they would only use the sim if it were offered for free probably work at a job where they get paid for their time. I fully support the notion that we should all be paid for doing work that creates value for others. Enough said. As far as what and how to charge for the sim, while some people thought $147 for a one-time purchase was either sufficient, and believe it or not, in some cases, they thought I wasn't charging enough considering the scope of the sim, others felt $147 was simply too much. One person used the word outrageous. The majority suggested a one-time payment of about $100. Almost nobody liked the idea of membership access to the simulator. And the reason I wanted to offer membership access was really a cost savings to the user. It might actually be possible to get everything you need from the sim in one to two months of use. At $49 per month for two months, that would only cost $98 out of pocket, and you would not have to pay it all in one lump. But as I said, that didn't have any traction in the survey and I will either let it go or just simply offer it as a second option to those that would like to go that direction. In any case, I'm pressing forward with the aircraft simulator. At this point, I have a working model for recognizing voice responses to basic airport tower clearances. And of course, as we proceed, I'm going to have air traffic control responses in just about any situation you can think of, initially VFR and eventually also for IFR flight. I'm also halfway through building a three-dimensional cockpit, that's a 3D on-screen cockpit, that you'll use to interface with the simulator. There are miles to go before I sleep, (laughs) and I'll keep you posted on my progress. I also plan to have some test models online to let you play around with the sim and give me your ideas on what what is good and what is bad about it. If you took the survey, thank you for helping me push the aircraft radio simulator forward. Stay tuned for further developments. It's going to be a journey, and I sure could use your company. Here's a quick hit from my Twitter feed. Earlier today on Twitter, I posed the question, do you always have to hold short of an ILS hold short line on a taxiway until ATC clears you to taxi past it? 
Well, the answer, of course, is no. You can safely ignore ILS hold short lines unless ATC specifically tells you to hold short of the ILS critical area for a specific runway. ATC will only tell you to hold short of the ILS line when the airport weather is less than 800 foot ceiling or the reported visibility is less than two miles and there is an aircraft on an ILS approach for the runway and the airplane is inside of the outer marker for the ILS approach. Believe it or not, when your airplane taxis within a certain distance of the ILS localizer antenna, the metal body of your aircraft can actually distort the signal transmitted by the antenna. Many times I've flown an airliner using an ILS to help me line up with the runway, even in visual conditions, and I've watched the localizer needle go absolutely crazy when a large airliner in front of me got close to the runway. I'll also see this anomaly when a large airplane on the ground crosses my landing runway while I'm still on the approach to the runway. It gets really nuts if I have the autopilot fly the ILS and the localizer signal gets distorted by an airplane taxiing nearby. The autopilot will faithfully follow the localizer signal as it gets pushed left and right by the aircraft taxiing on the ground. To save the situation, I usually have to disconnect the autopilot and hand fly the airplane while ignoring the temporary gyrations of the localizer needle. So, when the ceiling or visibility might require activation of the ILS hold short line, you'll hear about it on the airport's ATIS broadcast. Even if weather conditions warrant the use of the ILS hold short line, ATC may not require you to hold short of the line if there is no aircraft inside the outer marker on the ILS to the affected runway. So again, the real answer is if ATC doesn't tell you to hold short of that line, you don't have to hold short of that line regardless of what the weather is doing. Due to the low ceiling and visibility required to activate the ILS hold short line, as a VFR pilot, the only time you might be required to hold short of an ILS hold short line is when you are attempting to depart an airport under a special VFR clearance. I put questions and other tips about working with air traffic control on my Twitter feed a few times per week. You're welcome to join in on the fun and conversation by following me at Twitter. You can join me at Twitter by using the Twitter icon in the right-hand margin at any page at atccommunication.com or by going to Twitter and searching for Jeff underscore ATC. That's Jeff underscore ATC. Before we get to your question of the week, I'd like to read another short passage from an email I received from another listener. And here again, I'm quoting, I am from Venezuela. I am contacting you because I would like to start my pilot studies in the United States, but I have a couple of questions. I have been collecting info about schools in Florida. He says, I like the weather, but I really can't decide. I have info about ATP, Aerosim, Wayman, Dean, ADF. Have you heard something about these schools? Is there any school you could recommend? The other question is, I'm 33 years old, and I don't know if I'm too old to start an aviation career. I should point out that the writer is in another line of work and has no flying experience whatsoever. His concern is, given the amount of time it takes to build up flying hours, would he be too old to be considered for hiring by an airline or some other type of company that needs pilots? I can answer the second question easily. It's almost never too late to start a flying career. Here in the United States, 
Airlines will hire pilots with little or no regard for age. Before beginning my flying career with an airline, I flew privately in the military in a, and in a flying company that gave orientation flights to civilians and military aircraft. I also did some corporate flying and then flying for a small, mostly regional airline. I did not start flying for a major airline until I was almost 40 years old. So no, really, it's never too late to start a flying career. The first question is harder for me to answer, so I'll need your help. In my case, I learned to fly and then got my instrument rating by using freelance flight instructors at two different flying clubs. I don't have any experience at all with flight schools. So, if you have any experience with the following flight schools, please write to me at jeff at atccommunication.com. I'll put you in touch with my friend in Venezuela, and you can tell him about your experiences. Here, once again, are the schools that we're looking at. ATP, Aerosim, Wayman, Dean, and ADF. Now, I know there are other schools all over the country, and some of these offer four-year degrees in addition to flight training. Since my friend is only interested in learning to fly in Florida and does not need a four-year undergraduate degree, let's help him by concentrating on the list of schools I just provided. Again, you can reach me at jeff at atccommunication.com. On behalf of my friend in Venezuela, thank you very much if you can help with some information. And now, let's get to your question of the week. You are departing VFR from a Class Charlie airport. Before you taxied out to the active runway, the clearance delivery controller in the airport tower gave you a discrete transponder code to squawk and a frequency to contact departure control. You have lifted off of the runway and you're climbing away from the airport. The last thing the tower controller said to you was, Clear for takeoff. You are now seven miles from the airport, well beyond the boundary of the tower's airspace, and you have not heard anything further from the tower controller. Here's your question. What, if anything, should you say on the radio? When you think you know the answer to that question, go to the link atccommunication.com forward slash answers. There you will find a complete answer along with a full explanation of how that answer was derived. Music for the show is provided by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com on a Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. If you're flying this week, I hope you have a great time in beautiful weather. And if you happen to be working with ATC when you fly, I hope all your handoffs from controller to controller go smoothly. I'm Jeff Canarish for ATCCommunication.com saying be well, keep in touch by email and by Twitter, And above all, fly safe.